There is uh, an elder in this church who last year was setting up Christmas decorations and broke his arm and had to have surgery on it. That man never has to set up Christmas decorations for the rest of his life. I don't know if you pay attention at all to the Babylon Bee, the satirical website and news source that had this fake article recently. Husband becomes Jehovah's Witness to get out of putting up Christmas lights. <laughs> Jehovah's Witnesses don't celebrate Christmas. We were doing what we refer to as the great Christmas migration in our house. All of the Christmas decorations are stored at the basement level, and most of them come up to the main floor of the house. And so like Jacob's ladders, the Conwisher family was ascending and descending on the stairwell that goes between the basement level and the main floor. And we were trying to do this on a timeline. And so as we're doing this on a timeline, we're moving pretty quickly, which is always a little dangerous. And I am carrying the nativity set that we got when we got married that is massive. It's like two feet by three feet by three feet. And I'm carrying it because I'm the guy of the house. And was it something I said? You guys okay? Because I really didn't mean to offend with the Jehovah's Witness confident if, that was, if that's what it was. Interesting. Okay, so I'm carrying the, um, I'm carrying the big nativity set uh, up the stairs, and, and one of our daughters is, is walking down, and, um, and I lift the nativity set up above my head so that she can pass by, because there's no way if I'm holding it here that she can get by the nearest stairwell. So I lift it up so she can pass by, and she gracefully passes by, and I keep moving forward as I lift it up, not realizing that I am right next to the door jam and door frame. And so because of a little thing called physics, the nativity runs into the door, and then the nativity runs into my head. And I almost fall off the back down the stairs. Do you know what my first thought was? Actually, I can't tell you what my first thought was. <laughs> Do you want to know what my second thought was? Christmas still surprises, which is the theme of what we're talking about, is that the nativity actually the nativity hitting me upside the head is probably a little more akin to what Christmas felt like for Mary and for Joseph and all those original heroes. Christmas wasn't something you planned. It wasn't something you decorated. It wasn't something that you kind of filled with sentiment and look forward to. Christmas was a surprise. It was a, here it is, and you're not ready for it. And so as we're doing this, we're walking through a famous portion of scripture. It's known as the Annunciation. It is where the angel Gabriel announces the message of the good news of the birth of Jesus Christ to Mary. And the way that we're talking about how that, that was a surprise for them and for us is last week we talked about that Christmas still surprises through disturbing wonder. Does Christmas inspire you to be filled more with a troubled sense of awe? Or does it not? This week, we're talking about how Christmas still surprises us with a grander vision. And we're taking a zeroed-in look on the specific words of what the angel Gabriel says to the mother Mary. And so let's look at one, chapter, for, chapter 1 of Luke's gospel and starting in the 26th verse. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was gravely troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. 
You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you were to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and his reign over Jacob's descendants forever. And his kingdom will never end. One of the most common phrases that comes to us in the form of the New Testament is in the command. It's the command, do not be afraid. And so that message is so pressing for us who live in an anxious and worried world that there's a reason for us to not be afraid. And if you ever want to do an interesting Bible study, because very rarely does it say, do not be afraid, and that that's all that it says. It usually says something connected with it. Do not be afraid, and that it adds something as to what or why. In this passage, we saw it this way. It's, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found what with God? Favor. In the New Testament, the word favor is the word for grace. If you were with us last week, you saw how they repeated over and over again that the greeting itself literally is grace. You are the one who have received grace. And then here, we get to the same word, that same word in the Greek for gift. Mary, you don't have to be afraid because you have the very grace of God. Let me see if I can illustrate this for you in a different way. Back in the 1990s, there was a dynasty of a football team, the Buffalo Bills, that made it to the Super Bowl four consecutive times, but they never won the Super Bowl. Imagine having such a great regular season and year after year making it through the gauntlet to be able to get to the big game only just to fall short. And the most heartbreaking of all of those losses was the first one. It was the Super Bowl that was in 1991. And what made it so particularly heartbreaking is that their kicker, Scott Norwood, missed a uh, 47-yard field goal that would have caused them to win the game. I know it's 47 yards because one of you who fact-checks what I said in between the services told me that it was 47 yards long. You know how they say that 90% of uh, communication is body language? Look at the body language of Scott Norwood after he's kicked the kick and missed it. Look at the body language of the other team. Look at the body language here of what the zoom is of the despair and the shame of having let the fans and his teammates down. Well, surprisingly, when they got back to Buffalo, it wasn't with a cold reception, but the fact that 30,000 fans gathered in the center of town in order to welcome the team back, even in the face of defeat. And while the fans were there, and while the people from the team and the executives and the coaches and the players were all up front, the crowd began to chant, we want Scott, we want Scott, we want Scott. And Scott, who was hiding in the back of all of the players, which is easy for kickers to do behind linemen and things of that nature, got shoved to the very front into the podium of this grainy image here. He obviously wasn't planning on speaking, so he didn't have any prepared words. But what poured out of his mouth was a remarkable phrase. I have never felt more loved than I do right now. 
Can you think of a moment in your life where you should have received shame or condemnation or guilt, but instead you received grace? I'm sure that Scott Norwood walked in to his hometown with fear, but his fear melted in the face of a greater grace. This is what the grace of God did for Mary, and it's what the grace of God can do for you and me. It gives us a totally different and bigger perspective of what life really can be. And so let's see what the grander vision of God's grace did for Mary and for us, a a grace, a favor that conquers our fear. And we'll look closely at what the words of the angel said. The first thing that the angel is going to talk about is salvation. You will conceive, the angel said, and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. Now, if you were with us last week, you know that I talked about when the angel approaches Mary, that one of the things that they would have known that's lost on us today is that Mary is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Miriam. And Miriam is a figure in the Old Testament, a person in the Old Testament, and Miriam's name means rebellion. Mary is the mother of the rebellion. The same thing is true with Jesus. We're so familiar with the name Jesus that we don't know that it has an Old Testament counterpart, that the word Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua. And Joshua means God delivers, God rescues God saves. And so what we need to know right out of the outset here is that this son, this one who is to be born in her, is coming for a particular job description, and that is a message of salvation. When you look through the New Testament and you see what Jesus did and you fly through it, you see that Jesus saved us from a variety of different things, that with all of its healing miracles, he saves us from disease, that he saves us from our sins, or as we refer to it in the Lord's Prayer, our debts. He saves us from despair because the gospel is the one thing that gives us a true and lasting hope, that the gospel saves us from destruction and from tearing one another apart, and the gospel ultimately saves us from death. My friends, the reason that Christmas doesn't surprise people today, first and foremost, is that they don't think that they need to be saved from anything. Until you come to terms with the reality of death and disease and despair and your own sin, you will not see a need for Jesus. You won't see a need for a Savior You won't find any meaning in grace, and you will stay in your fear. And so the first grander vision that that God gives us is a grace that actually rescues us from our human predicament and our situation. And the second thing we notice in the angel's words is that grander vision of God's grace gives us a significance. This is how the angel puts it. You will conceive, you will give birth to a son, and you were to call him Jesus, and he will be Great. Now, the word great in the New Testament Greek is the word mega. It is the word that repeats about 250 times in the New Testament. They'll talk about great is their faith, or a great kind of love, or great power. So, the the word great appears a lot in the New Testament. 
But the most fascinating thing about this is that Jesus redefines greatness in the New Testament. That whoever wants to become great among you, Jesus said, must become like a servant. I was doing a marriage counseling appointment recently, a a bright young couple, um, so excited for their future, and they desperately want to have a great marriage. But there's a problem. The problem is they want a great marriage, but they don't want to do what it takes to have a great marriage. They want a great relationship, but neither one of them are willing to lay down to be able to lay down their own needs to put the other needs before themselves, to serve the other person first before seeking their own rightness or their own desires. And so because of that, they just keep going around and around and around again where the other person is supposed to meet your needs, but you're not doing everything you can in order to love and to serve them. My friends, what Jesus does is he tells us that we can have greatness. We can have a significant life, significant love, significant relationships. But all of those things have to be turned upside down and seen through the lens of service. You know, the reason that Christmas doesn't surprise us today is not only because we don't think we need to be saved from something, but because we keep looking for significance and greatness, but we're doing so without service. And we'll never find greatness that way. We'll never find significance until we bend the knee. So the grander vision of a grace that's greater than our fear comes first in the form of salvation and then significance and then sonship. And this requires a little more explanation based on what the angel says. You will conceive, you will give birth to a son. You were to call him Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the son of the most high. One of the many titles that we have for Jesus in the New Testament, even in the Old Testament as they anticipate the Messiah is to come, the son of man, the son of God. Or this here, the Son of the Most High. And most of the time when we're reading our New Testaments, we kind of think of that as kind of like an honorary doctorate or an honorary title of some sort that God kind of bestows upon Jesus. But when in reality, that might be partly true. But in the most of what the New Testament is telling us is taking it one step further. It's not just about a title that Jesus has, it's what that means for us. One of the clear ways we see this is there's kind of a a, a strange, a puzzling story in the New Testament. Do you you remember the story where, where Jesus is teaching amongst some people, and as he's teaching, somebody knocks on the door, and one of the disciples pokes his head in and says, hey, Jesus, your mama and your brothers are here, and the Uber is waiting, and you gotta get going. And Jesus' response is not what anybody would expect. Who are my mother and my brothers? Jesus asked. And then he looked at those seated in the circle around him and said, Here, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. The most natural, instinctive thing in the world is to care for our immediate family. The revolutionary thing that Jesus does is that he expands the concept of family. 
but we miss it. True story of two guys in their early 40s, um, and these two guys were working for the same furniture company. They grew up in Bangor, Maine, but in two different parts of town. And these two guys, as you can imagine, when you're having to move furniture, you have to communicate effectively together. You have to work together in order to carry heavy things. You have to be able to kind of partner with someone. And the, the people would comment on how well they worked together, that, that Gary and Randy just had this natural way of doing things together. And so people would say, you guys work so well together. Are you related? And they would laugh and say, no. And then they would also say, like, you guys don't just work well together. You guys look a lot alike. Are you sure you're not related? They worked together for years before they realized that they had the exact same birthday on the same year. March 10th, 1974. Well, that's kind of interesting. And they dug a little deeper, and it turns out that they were related, that they were twins that had been separated at birth, and that they were actually brothers. And they had been working together side by side, and they never knew it. Jesus is the son. And the reason that he's the son is so that you and I might be adopted sons and daughters with Jesus. We are his brothers and sisters. And so what that means is, is that we can't see one another the way that we just want to see them. We have to see them through the prism of a new kind of ever-expanding family that Jesus has created. When somebody cuts you off in traffic, do you just mutter under your breath and say, oh yeah, but that's a brother in Christ? <laughs> or when somebody's driving you crazy at a store, you know what? She is created in the image of God. And yet that's how we're called to see one another. It's the nature of what Jesus has come to do, he became the son of God so that we might become sons and daughters of God. Christmas doesn't surprise us today because we miss this like those brothers. We don't realize that we're a family. And then the last point here is that not only do we get with a grander vision of the gospel a sense of our rescue and significance through service, and an ever-expanding family, we also get this thing called sovereignty. Here's how the angel puts it. You will conceive, you will give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus, and he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever, and his kingdom will never end. Reign kingdom, throne. What Jesus is about is being able to reign on high. Back when we used to live in California, Kelly worked for a university. She was the vice president for all the operations of the university. And this was a rescue operation for the president and for her. This was a university that was in distress. And a part of the distress was a conflict 
a conflict that was going on between the administration and between the faculty. If you know anything about like university or school politics, you know that this is a regular conflict, that the faculty wanted to arrest more control from the administration. And so there was this big showdown of a meeting. And while they're in the meeting, which Kelly is recounting to me, that the president, Carol Taylor, got up to the podium to address the faculty. And she's like, shared governance is a gift. I am glad to partner with you. But I just have to tell you, you don't get to have authority without responsibility. So this little thing that you call tenure, that makes you impervious to being held accountable to anything, if you want more authority, that's fine. Let's share the authority. But that also means that you have to share in the responsibility. This is one of those dinners where I'm taking notes as my wife is telling me what happened at work. In Christian terms, we would say sovereignty always comes with stewardship. And let me be political for a moment here. The reason that we are struggling so much in our society today is that we are electing officials who want the authority of the role without the responsibility of the task before them. That if we are going to take on the mantle of leadership, we are never going to get anywhere if we also don't receive the mantle of the stewardship of the well-being of this American society. The reason that Christmas doesn't surprise today in the same way that it always used to is because we want authority without the responsibility. And so here are the different ways that in the angels talk, that each phrase is like, um, when you look at the Old Testament and New Testament, it's like exploding with meaning as it goes along. That we get this grace that expands our vision of salvation and significance and sonship and sovereignty, that through service and through stewardship, we're a part of an ever-expanding family that is helping to rescue and to save individuals and society from the death and destruction and the decay of what's before us. But maybe the biggest surprise in today's text is so obvious, we just skip right past it. We don't notice it. Did you notice in the beginning of what it says here, it said, the angel said, you will conceive and give birth to a son. Back up for a moment. Does God have to work through Mary? Couldn't he come any way that he wanted to? Why would he go through all of the, the mess and the process to partner with a human to bring about the reign of Christ? Here's the reason. At Christmas, God's not only with us, God's not only for us. At Christmas, we learn that God chooses to work through us. That has been particularly true this year for three women 
who met one another, who started to feel like God was going to work through them to do something in this church that we've never done before. Watch the screen. When I was 32, I had my second child, Johnny, and did not know that anything was different about this pregnancy. You know, went to the hospital like every other expecting mom and came home with something utterly different than what I was expecting. It was not until they told me he had Down syndrome that I realized I had a child with special needs, and that was the first person I had ever met with special needs. We have an opportunity at our big, beautiful campus to make an impact in the city of Atlanta with special needs adults. They're a group that is unseen. They're a group that's not touched. Wonderfully Made is a program. We will minister to special needs adults and that we will cultivate community and belonging in the name of Jesus Christ. This program will give the opportunity for special needs adults to have a place to belong in unexpected togetherness. churches that we visited in Kansas City runs it as a program with a bakery attached to it. Baking is such a great avenue for a multitude of things. I mean not only the skills that you need when baking, math, science, reading, but also just the community that baking builds and the friendships that are formed in the kitchen. When we had the baking session and then we took it to the Peachtree members that um, can no longer get out to the church, we went and took them baked goods or flowers. It was so much fun just to spread joy. They have an opportunity to bond together, to interact with each other, um, and there's absolutely no judgment in the room. They talk to us about their dreams, about what they want. They want to invite their friends. God has blown me away with opportunities that he's given us. Um, I've prayed for a lot of roadblocks that I would know that this was not from God or this was not God's plan, and we haven't gotten any roadblocks. We've got blessings. I see a program that brings the community together into Peachtree. I see our members interacting with our special needs adults. I see our youth coming alongside of us for events. Find a job for high-functioning people with special needs, but you can't find community for them. He doesn't need to show up and bag groceries for a couple of hours in silence. That's not really what he was missing. So for him to get to go to Wonderfully Made and be with people like him and then also interact with typical people has just made his day. Now it's, do I get to go baking today? am I baking today? Just to attach himself to something and say, I did that, I'm a part of that, those are my people, means as much to him as it does for any of us. Is Miss Kitty a good baker? Yes. <laughs> not really, Emma. No, I'm not. I'm not the baker. Who's the baker? Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Anything you want to say to people? Um, buddy. With me, and I love everybody, and thank you for coming with me in the church with me. Oh, yeah.
program over the course of this year that's been in the form of a calling and a dream that's been pulling together into a reality that's a ministry that's going to launch in the fall and a bakery that will launch in the beginning of 2025. We're a hundred-year-old church. God's still surprising us, right? God's still surprising them. Confirmation students, you may think that you just kind of did something that's a ceremony. I'm here to tell you. The Holy Spirit is alive and active, not just in this room, but in this world. And the Spirit can move you because He's not only with you and for you, God can work His grace through you to the point where you realize you have been fearfully and wonderfully made. And so, dear friends at Peachtree, I'm going to invite you to rise to your feet to receive the prayer and blessing of what it means to be God's own precious people. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. And the night will shine like the day. For the darkness is as light to you. You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, Lord, because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that now full well. May it be so.